Good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. Thank you for being with us. Whether in person here, whether at North Avenue, whether watching at home, we're so glad that you've chosen to come and worship. A couple things for you just as we get started. Uh, last week, we had our pie auction for our students going to our life conference. I want to thank you for that. Over $4,200 uh, was raised, uh, and you all buying pies. So thank you for that. But it's not all good news. Not all good news. So one of the pies last week sold for $1,000, and it wasn't my pie. Um, so that means that someone bought a pie for $1,000 after I had said I held the record for five hundred. I mean, some, one of you bought a pie out of spite. That's just wrong. That's just mean spirit. I don't know who you are. We're going to find out who you are. I know where you live. We're going to make you buy pie for everyone in the church. That's the deal. But thank you for participating. That kind of fun is what it's about. And uh, our students going to Life Conference this July. Lives will be changed, and you get to be part of that. So very sincerely, uh, thanks for making that fun and for making it successful. Uh, as you heard already, Easter week, here we are. We have some areas of need volunteer-wise. Uh, please help with that. Find that place in which to serve. Uh, cards are available. I want to make sure that not only you, you know the card and use it this week inviting folks, but a reminder of the different service times. So make sure you're on top of that for next Sunday specifically on this site, different service times. But we got a lot of stuff taking, ha taking place, a Good Friday service at North Avenue. we got an Easter egg hunt happening on Saturday, North Avenue. Then we're ba back here Saturday night for our first service, Saturday evening, 4.30. And then we're back North Avenue, 10 o'clock in the morning. We're here 8 um, 8 o'clock and 9.30 and 11, so make sure you get the right times or you're going to walk in next week on Sunday morning here, perhaps, if you're on this site, kind of going, how come I'm in the middle of the service? That's because you got the wrong time. The times are on the card, but please invite folks. In fact, what I'd like to do is before we get into the sermon this morning, I'd like to offer a prayer, not just for the sermon, but for this week. It's a strategic week in invitations, people being willing to come, and to, let's just ask God to do something great this coming week. Father, as we're gathered here, and we do pause for a moment, we're going to look to your word here, but before we even talk about that, we give to you this coming week. It, it always moves me when I stop to realize that even in a world that oftentimes we think doesn't care about spiritual things, quite literally millions upon millions upon millions of people will stop and pause what they're doing over the course of this coming weekend to stop and remember or reflect upon the fact that there's an Easter story. Even those folks that may not be followers of Jesus, there's something about Easter that grabs their attention. And so I would pray, Lord Jesus, that in the course of this coming week, there'd be all sorts of fruit for your kingdom as people would pause long enough to say, so what's the deal with the Easter story? I pray for our people right here. I pray that we would be doing our part in inviting folks. We just never know the person that we might invite who might say yes. They've been waiting for someone to ask them. And so I pray that you'd raise up all sorts of people from our church, regardless of what campus, regardless of their watching from home, even for folks that are watching in different states or different countries, might they invite people along with them in the journey, taking that first step in discovering who you are. Raise up volunteers, raise up workers, but we're just trusting you for a week of incredible success in ministry, not just here, but around the world as we stop and we proclaim the incredible story that Jesus, you are alive and still changing lives. Please, I pray, Lord Jesus, and every one of us, give us that courage that would ask one or two or three to ask that person, hey, would you like to go to Easter church service with me? And might that be the starting place in many people's walks with you. Lord Jesus, we look at your word, we come to your word this morning, and I pray that you open our hearts and minds to your truth. Uh, please don't inform us. Please don't just educate us with your word, but change us and transform us. And I ask that you start that with me. May, you, may the words that we share this morning, and may your word penetrate my heart and change me, and in turn, change us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid and growing up, my dad worked at IBM. Now, my dad, as you've heard many times, you've heard me say my dad was not an engineer. Uh, my dad was not an electrical engineer, wasn't a computer programmer, didn't go to college. Uh, went to high school, graduated high school, like many other kids in his small town. Graduated high school, got on a train, uh, shipped off to World War II. He came back uh, shell-shocked, meaning he didn't have a 
a, a scar on his body, but a bomb went off next to him that they tell me radically changed him. He came back from the war and was bagging groceries in a little grocery store in town. And back then you could probably get by doing that, newly married and bagging groceries. He heard that there was this company called IBM that was opening a huge plant in Endicott, New York, about 45 minutes away. He drove up and applied, got the job, and he worked in a warehouse. He was not an engineer. He worked in a warehouse making sure that parts got on the line for people to make. And back then they weren't making computers. Uh, they were making you know, like time, time card stamps and clocks and those kind of things. That was his job. And he would uh, go to work each day. He'd come home. And I was the youngest in the, of, our, of the kids. My sister's 10 years older than I am. My brother's 7 years older. So when they were teenagers and up, I'm still, you know, 10 years old. So, I'm, you know, young. And my dad would come home from work. And like any other day, he'd be, hey, I'm home. And it's like, you know, yep, yeah, you're home. But he'd come in every now and then and say, hey, I got you something. And man, that would just alert me right up. Now, please know what something meant was he probably took a quarter or back then, maybe a dime or a nickel. We weren't rich, but he would buy a bag of peanuts from the vending machine, planter's peanuts, or a candy bar, and he'd have it in his pocket, and he'd come home and say, I got you something, and I would run to say, what do you have? And he'd say, it's me. And it's kind of like, what else you got? You know, it's like, come on, something. And of course, he'd hand me that bag of peanuts or whatever, and I'd be thrilled because it was something. So, of course, I carried that on as an adult. Uh, I had children, and I would be asked to speak. I'd go and speak at a camp or a retreat. And when the kids were younger, they weren't always able to come with me. Oftentimes, the family went with me. But oftentimes, I'd go by myself. I'd come back. My wife would pick me up at the airport with the kids, and uh, the kids knew my pattern, and that is I always brought them back something. So it would be the same kind of deal. Kids, daddy's home. I got you something. And they'd say, what do we have? What do we have? i go, you got me. And it'd be like same, same horribly disappointed look on their faces. You know, it's like, you know, what else you got? It's like, me, aren't I enough? And it's like, you're nice, but no. What's in the suitcase? It was always like, what's in the suitcase? And so they'd run with me, and I'd open my suitcase to kind of see what was in there. Now, I've come to realize that unfortunately... For many of us, in many of us Christians, in our Christian lives, the same thing kind of happens with our walk with God. I've come to realize that the absolute joy of just having Jesus is enough, but somewhere along the way it happens. Somewhere along the way that it moves from Jesus being enough to, well, what do you have for me? Well, here I am. I'm enough. We go, aren't I enough? Well, you know, you're good. But what's in the box? What's in the suitcase? Uh, our prayers actually start with, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the blue sky. Thank you for all the things you've done. And by the way, let's get through the small talk. Here's what I need from you today. Uh, and Jesus would say, well, you have me. Am I not enough? And we go, well, what's in the suitcase? What else do you have? Let's take one more step in this thought process. It'll all come back around towards the end, but let's take one more step in the thought process. When you want something from someone, when you're talking to someone, when you're in a relationship with someone, and that, from that person, you want something from them. You want them to give you something. You want them to say something. You want them to do something for you. Here's my question. When you're relating to someone where you want them to do something for you, is it possible to have with them an authentic relationship? And the answer to that is no. See, you can't have an authentic relationship with someone when the relationship is based on what you want them to do for you. See, it's not authentic. The relationship we have is strained. There's a tension that happens because instead of it just being the relationship between us, I'm in this relationship with you because I need you to do something. I want you to do something. You need to deliver for me. So I would venture to say that a relationship is not authentic, can't be authentic, when we're in the relationship in order to get something out of it, it's not possible. So our series, we continue this morning, we're in our series, Up Close and Personal. John, the disciple of Jesus, records for us seven very distinct signs, seven very distinct miracles that he wanted to write down because they made the case for him to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He was convinced. But not only was he convinced... That Jesus Christ was who he said he was, but when he made that decision and arrived at that place, he also discovered that Jesus Christ was enough. That's all he needed. And he wants us to make that same discovery. John knew 
John knew that Jesus was who he said he was because he found it to be true because he saw it for himself. Up close and personal, he witnessed these things. So what has John seen so far that we've looked at? Well, we saw him turn the, Jesus turn the water into wine. That was the first one. We saw the first uh, telehealth miracle. Thanks. Whoever's laughing over here, thank you so much. You know, every, every, I, I use that one, you know, telehealth. He heals the guy, doesn't you know, the modern COVID, nothing, huh? Tough, tough crowd. Anyway, he heals, he heals the nobleman's son from a distance, doesn't even go, but heals him. That's the second miracle we see, second sign. And then he heals the lame man who'd been lame for 38 years and has him get up and walk and carry his mat. And now today we come to the fourth sign. The fourth sign is a very, very well-known story, perhaps even one of, one of the most well-known stories. It's the story of Jesus feeding an awful lot of people with a couple loaves of bread and some fish. He feeds 5,000, it says. The uh, headline, the uh, paragraph heading in our Bible says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 he feeds with five loaves of bread and two small fish. One of the most well-known stories. And this story is actually not a sign necessarily or just a miracle about the fish and loaves. Make sure you hear this. It'll help you understand as we go through this. This sign is really a story about what happens to people when they bump into the tension of this. If I follow Jesus, what do I get out of it? It's really a story about what happens when we find ourselves saying, I'll follow you, but what's in it for me? And that's really what the story is about. Let me give you some background as we get started this morning and, and kind of lay out the picture for you. The nation of Israel is an oblong uh, country, so it's kind of oblong in size, which means it runs north to south. Its length is 263 miles. North to south, 263 miles. The widest part of the country is 71 miles wide. The narrowest part of the country is just six and a half miles wide. So you got a pretty tiny point, and then it kind of goes up, gets a little wider, and goes north to south. So that's the picture. Jesus and his disciples had been in Jerusalem. That's where the healing took place, where he had the man stand up and walk and carry his mat. That was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be in the southern part of Israel. And now they're way north. They're on their way north. They're going back to the Galilee area. And that would be about a five to seven day walk from Jerusalem back into the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you get to the Sea of Galilee, you begin to recognize that, as he, that that's the place, that's Jesus' home base and even to this day, if you go visit the area and you go to the Sea of Galilee, it's the resort area of Israel. Uh, typically when we go, we go in February. It's a pretty dead town. But if you're there in the summer months, it's packed full of people. And the people are all Israelis that come from other parts in a, in a hot, arid, Middle Eastern country. You go to the Sea of Galilee where you got a lake and fresh water and swim and play. That's the place. So even today, though, it's a little more desolate than the rest of the country and the rest of the region. Back then, it was very remote. So they make their way back up to the Sea of Galilee area. And remember, the Sea of Galilee is no sea. Remember, it's a big lake. Uh, it's a lake that is 13 miles long in its widest point, or longest point, and 8 miles wide. 13 by 8, just for, pre, uh, for perspectives. Uh, lake Champlain, 107 miles long, 14 miles wide. So it's not a very, it's not a you know, big body of water, but again, by Middle Eastern standards, it's a sea in the area of Galilee. So he's in that area. He's about 100 miles from Jerusalem. Now, there's some pieces you have to know. We look at all the Gospels together. He had just learned, Jesus had just learned that the John the Baptist had been beheaded. Don't forget John the Baptist was his cousin, but not only his cousin, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Christ. He was the one preaching that the, the one is coming, the sent one is coming. Remember, he baptized Jesus, and he said, behold the lamb. And so he just learns that John the Baptist is beheaded. If we read the gospel accounts, there's been a lot of intense ministry taking place. And so it seems to make sense that he kind of retreats back up to the Sea of Galilee, and he's looking for some downtime. Maybe some time to process, maybe just some time away from all the rush of it all. But in spite of the fact that he's gone up north, in spite of the fact he's gone to a pretty remote area, all the people find him. Even now that he's in a remote area, the people seek him out. Wherever he went, the crowds followed him. And why did they follow him? Because of their faith in him? Nope. They followed him because of the signs. They followed him because of the miracles. They followed him wherever he went because, quite honestly, they wanted to see what he was going to do next. So here's our text for today. John chapter 6, verse 1. 
Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. People followed Jesus because of what they saw and because of what they heard. It was not based on faith. It was based on what they could see. Now picture this. Jesus and his disciples, they get in a boat. They're going to get away, and they're going to hop in the boat, probably in Tiberias, and they're probably going to head, you know, a little bit north and, uh, uh, you know, a little bit to the east, and they're going to head to this furthest part of the lake. So they hop in the boat, and they make their way. But as he's doing it, all these people, they know who's in the boat. And again, it's not like you can't see the lake. Anywhere you go around the lake, down down in a crater, you can see the lake. So everyone knows who's in the boat. So as he's in the boat trying to get to the other side, they're all following. They're all building a crowd as they're walking and running along the the seashore, if you will, to find out where he's going to land and be there. All these people from all over. Now, in spite of the fact that he's as north as he can be, thousands of people are still running after him. Now, many of them probably, most likely, had not ever seen him in person Most of them had probably not heard him in person, but what they had heard is they heard the stories. They'd heard about him. They heard what he could do. The stories would make all through the countryside about the healings. And don't forget, we have seven of these miracles recorded, but John says that there were so many miracles that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books to contain them all if he wrote them all down. So they all heard the stories. And so they were interested in what he was going to do next. So Jesus sails to the other side, but here they come. So Jesus gets to the other side. He goes up on a hillside. And again, if you could be there and see it, maybe someday we'll we'll go there again and take you. But if you get there, the the whole area, these beautiful fields, all looking down on the lake, especially down the Capernaum side of things. And there's this beautiful hillside there. He goes up, he sits down, and you can just picture a Vermont day and a nice day sitting in a field, and they're relaxing. And then we begin to get some details from John where it says in verse 4, and the Jewish Passover festival was near. Let me give you this background because though it doesn't seem important, it actually is. Here's the background to it. Don't forget that the Jewish celebration of Passover was very close and that the celebration of Passover was the celebration of God delivering Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. And don't forget that term Passover reflected and and meant the remembrance of when they had the, the blood painted over their doorposts and when the angel of death came, the angel of death passed over that house And they spared the lives. And that was the last miracle, the last act that took place that then led Pharaoh to releasing uh, the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. So they celebrated Passover. But please know that when Passover came, not only did they celebrate and remember what had happened in the past, you also need to know that was the time where they were praying and waiting for what was yet to come in the future. Because don't forget that back then, they were held captive by the Egyptians. Today, they were held captive in their own country by the Romans. So when Passover would come, they would remember the fact that God spared them and God released them from Egypt. But in the same way, they were waiting for the fact that God would send his anointed one. They knew that a Messiah was coming. And in their minds, that Messiah would come and do what? They would lead them in the revolution against Rome. And once again, they would be watching for this one sent from God to free them and start the revolution. Okay, so Jesus looks up and he sees the people. He's tired. He's sitting down. He's laying down in this field. He's got this beautiful view of the lake and the valley. And he looks up. Oh, boy. People. 
Disciples look up, oh boy, oh boy. I mean, because they were all looking for a little alone time with Jesus, private time, and here comes thousands of people. I can hear them. I can actually, in your head, you can hear them. Look up and say, man, where did they come from? There's thousands of them. And how did they get here so fast? I mean, they've been running nonstop, and look at here they are. Now, Jesus knows why they're coming. Do you know why? He knows exactly why they're coming. Because they wanted something. They were coming because they wanted something. They were enamored with the signs. They were enamored with the miracles. They were enamored with the healings. So they wanted to see another one. Uh, Quite honestly, at that time, Jesus was the greatest show on earth. He was. You couldn't match what he had to do, what he had to offer. And so quite honestly, they're there because they wanted another trick. They wanted another unexplainable healing. They wanted another sign. Do another one, Jesus. Do another one. That's why they were there. They had no idea that there was a point to all the miracles he did. They had no idea that what he was doing was pointing to something they just saw as a great show, something they couldn't explain. Do you ever see a good magician do a magic show? I mean, not the ones on TV where you can kind of say, yeah, the cameras and things, but in person when you see someone and you see them do something right in front of you and you go, how did they do that? Now, we know it's a trick. But when you have someone who's been lame for 38 years and you know that the guy can't walk or you got someone who's blind and the guy walks up and starts to dance around and walk away, you know it's not a trick. And man, you want to see more of that. That's right where the people are at. They have no idea there's a point to it all. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, well, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, I love this. Jesus sees all of them coming. It's mealtime. It's been a full day already for them having chased them down. And here they come, and it's mealtime, and there's no fast food, there's no markets, there's no, no preparations in place. And so he says to Philip, number one, Philip was from the area, so he would know the area. But number two, Philip was probably pretty close to him. But if the 12 are all sitting in the field together and pretty close, I could see him saying, hey, Philip, i got a question for you. What's that? Well, where can you go around here to buy bread to feed all these people? Now, just so you'll know, feeding these people was never part of the plan. Feeding the people was not part of any plan. Uh, They didn't do that. This was not part of the Jesus show. Jesus healed people. He didn't feed people. This would be a new one. You know, a lame guy, we can do that. Blind person, we can do that. Now, they couldn't personally at this point, but they'd seen it done. But this this is not part of what we do. We don't feed people. You know, we don't do the buffet lunch. This was an odd one, not a part of any plan that they ever thought through. And I would suggest that it wasn't even remotely something that they would consider. I mean, they got on a boat, they go on the other side of the lake to get away from the people, and here the people are crashing the party. This is not something that they wanted to be a part of. Now, verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. The word test there in the Greek is not really as helpful as it could be because when we see test him, we think test him, spiritual test. Please know it's not that. Everything we can tell, it's not a spiritual test. When Jesus said to Philip, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? He was not testing Philip. He was not expecting Philip to say, well, we have nothing, but we have you. We have nothing that we can do to feed these people, but we have you. And when we have you, we have all that we need. You meet our every need. You meet our need physically and spiritually and emotional. Jesus, you're it. We need nothing else. You're going to do something we don't know what, but we know you're the one who's going to do it because you can. We trust you. And it's not the test question. In fact, what happens in this moment, Jesus asks a question And Philip actually gives a really good answer. Um, He basically says, what? Feed all these people. I mean, how are we going to do that? But it's not a test. Don't forget, if it was a real test, if it's a spiritual test, here's the way you ask a spiritual test question. Philip, do you trust? Do you trust me that I can feed all these people with nothing? Isn't that a spiritual test? And you'd say, yes. It's a simple, yes, I trust you, no, I don't. You don't ask the question, where can we go buy bread for these people? So that word test is a little odd. It's not really a test. It's more of a statement that he makes. 
And I feel like, and I've grown up with this story, many of you grew up in church, grew up with knowing this story, but I feel like the story's gotten a little sterilized through time, a little romanticized. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, go to Israel. There's a chapel down at the Sea of Galilee. You can see a mosaic on the floor that's done, you know, capturing the fish and loaves. It's this beautiful picture. But I think we've got to step back for a moment and just take an honest look. First of all, I think that Jesus probably was having a little fun with Philip and the disciples. I think there's a little humor there. I think he was poking a little bit of fun. I mean, I think it goes like this. They're laying in the field, looking, enjoying the day. Jesus looked up and said, whoa. Look at all those people. And they would all go, wow, thousands. Yeah. Phil, I got a question. Where can we buy bread to feed all them? What? And, and Philip gives a great answer. The answer is find, bread, find a place to feed them. Listen, we don't have enough money. It would take a half a year's salary just to get enough bread for them to have just a bite. And I'm thinking the whole time Jesus had a smile on his face. He goes, yeah, kind of hard to do, isn't it? I think there's that kind of dialogue. And in the middle of this dialogue, what happens next in the story? Well, if you're ever with a group of people and there's children involved and you're going to run up to, to something, you know, who's the first ones to arrive? The kids. So while the group of thousands are making their way up the hillside, one of the first ones to arrive closest to Jesus is a kid and he's got a basket of sorts and he's got five loaves and two fish. So while they're having this dialogue, here's what happens next in verse 7 and 9. So Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wage to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Hey, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go to feed so many? Now again, understand, Jesus has posed the question, how are we going to feed all these people? And please know that they have no idea what, how they're going to do this. They have no idea what Jesus is about to do. But in this moment, the first one up there is a little boy. So they say, well, this guy got a kid right here. He's got five little loaves of bread and he's got two fishes. Now, what's interesting, now catch this. Isn't this where you guys think a little color here? What's interesting is they know that Jesus has the ability to do something. But if you read the story, they have no idea that he's going to. You see, it's funny to me, it seems easier to them to believe that he can make a lame person walk or a blind person see than he can produce enough food to feed all these people. Because they're perplexed at this. They, they know that he can do something. They, they know it's possible. But this is not one of those times. Because you see, if you make a lame man walk, you don't have to produce something from nothing. You just tell the guy, walk. And on top of that, this is their downtime. This isn't part of the show. This is them getting away from the show. So here they are, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. So they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So he has all the people sit down. Some of the other gospels will say he has them sit down in groups of hundreds or groups of fifties. So there's some organization to how they're going to feed everyone. Again, a little side note here. We think about things. Do you ever think about, here's where it kind of gets a little sterilized, which I hope you'll, you'll kind of take a different view. Quite literally, you ever think about how does this miracle happen? I mean, quite literally, how does it happen? So I got five loaves of bread and I got two fish. Now, we're going to assume that's a lunch for one little boy. The loaves would have been a little, probably about that size, little, little flat bread of barley. And then the fish would not have been like sea bass. We're talking about little sardine size of smoked or salted fish. So we're thinking that five loaves, two fish, it's enough for a little boy's lunch. So do the math. If that's enough for one little boy's lunch, and now think, of this, think this through. It tells us that there were 5,000 men. But don't forget, whenever they did a count, they gave you the count of the men. They didn't count everyone, but we know that there were men and women, women and children there as well because we have a little boy there. Do you know that most scholars would estimate there'd be between 18 and 20,000 people? 18 to 20,000 people would be in this gathering and 5,000 of them would be men. Now, why would it just say 5,000? Well, first, just oftentimes in, in, that time of, in that time of history, in that culture, they would record the number of men because the men counted. But we knew men and women, would, I mean, women and children would be there as well. But there's another thing that's quite interesting. 5,000 would be the number of a, Roman, a full Roman legion, a full Roman legion of soldiers. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But that would be kind of the number. 5,000 would be a, a, a Roman legion of soldiers. Doesn't mean there were soldiers there, though there may have been. But 5,000 men, a number of women. So we're talking about 18 to 20,000 people. So do the math. 
So if five loaves and two fish feed one little boy, if you're going to have enough to feed everyone lunch on that same you know, ratio, you're talking about 100,000 loaves of bread and about 40,000 fish. So now think about how this miracle takes place. When Jesus says to them, where could you go buy food enough to feed everyone? Just so you know right now, if we had 20,000 people show up for lunch after church today, in our modern day, you can't go out and find enough food for 20,000 people that quickly. I mean, you can't, it's not going to happen. So, I mean, it's, it's really kind of an astronomical thing. And then I asked the question is this, so how did it happen? So, when he prayed, and we'll get to that in a moment, when he prayed, did the five loaves, all of a sudden, they opened their eyes and boop, there's 100,000 loaves? I mean, just piles and piles and piles of loaves and piles and piles and piles of fish, and everyone just looks around, and they're just inundated with bread and fish? I don't think so, but it could because we don't have that. But here's what happens is that all of a sudden, all that's there, and all these people are eating. Now, we know that women and children would have been all been present about a, a part of this. Let's go back in the story in verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The people are seated. They have no idea what's going to take place. Jesus is there with his 12 and a little boy and those who are closest to the front. And then Jesus says, well, let's, let's say Grace. And please know, don't sterilize this picture. I am not thinking that when Jesus said, let's, let's give thanks for the food, that you see 12 disciples all fold their hands and bow their heads to join him with giving thanks for the food. See, friends, what's happening in that miracle would be like me saying, hey, I brought a bagel for breakfast for everybody. And you'd say, bagels? No, no, bagel. Brought a bagel for breakfast for everybody. I had this up front, and the worship team saw it, and one of them came out and said, hey, where's the other 11 bagels? I said, oh, there's plenty there. I mean, this is the picture. If I'd stand in front of you and say, I got bagel. You bagels? Bagel. And then I would say, let's just give thanks for our bagel. Now, when I say let's give thanks for our bagel because this is our meal today, and I said let's pray, like the disciples, I don't think everyone's going to have their hands folded and say, yeah, let's just give thanks. I think Jesus is sincerely giving thanks, and while he's doing that, I kind of picture the disciples looking at each other going, what in the world are you talking about? What, what is this about? I mean, are you kidding me? But he prays, he sincerely, he thanks God for his kind provision, and then he says, Amen. And he hands out the bread and the fish. Once again, I can't picture how this works. Does he give it to the disciples? And how does it work? He takes a loaf and hands it to you. When you break it in half, it grows back again to the factor. I mean, and every time you pass it, it doubles. But every time you eat it, it doubles again. I mean, I, I don't know what this looks like. But here's what we know. The people all knew something was taking place. They knew they were eating something and there was nothing and it keeps multiplying in ways we can't imagine. So that's what's taking place. So many, so many questions as to how this works. I have no idea. All that we know is we started with five loaves and two fish, and everyone has enough to eat. This is the Golden Corral on steroids on this hillside. Now, numbers of people try to write this off. Reading one article, one guy wrote and said that this was not a miracle at all, that what happened is that all the people that were there all had food with them already, but they wouldn't share with one another. And it wasn't until this one little boy offered to share his meal that everyone else said, well, we'll share ours too. So it wasn't a miracle at all. It was just one little boy uh, made the, made, broke the ice with being willing to share. But that's not what the eyewitnesses said. The eyewitnesses who were there said there was nothing except for this loaves and fish that they could see. And they watched a miracle happen. And the people knew something had happened as well. Now, this would have taken hours uh, this would have been the event of the day, hours in which for people to eat, then they gather up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, I'm not sure, how, you make sure you fully grasp this as best you can. You have 20,000 people who are now sitting there full. They don't exactly know how it all happened, but they know that they're full and something happened. Everyone was eating. And they had all that they could eat, all that they could stand. Now, they have just witnessed this sign. What's the question on their mind? Our text, verse 14. 
after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Surely this is the prophet that God would send. Jesus knew that they were up to something. Now, here's the picture you have to get. So all this happens, and what's the first question on their mind? Their question isn't, how do they do that? You look at all the miracles Jesus did, and the question was never, oh, how'd he do that? The question is, who is this guy? That's the question. Who is he? Now, it begins to happen. Think about this. They've all eaten. They're now sitting and laying in this field. They're full. It's the afternoon. They're wa- they've just seen this all happen, and somebody goes, wait a minute. He's the guy. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the sent one. He's the great prophet. He's the Messiah. It's Passover. You know, we're going to celebrate what God did, but we're also waiting for what he's going to do. This is the guy. He's the one. He's the one who can lead the revolution. This is God's anointed one. This is the Messiah. And all of a sudden, 20,000 people arrive at the same place. This is the guy. They arrived at the same place. He's the one. This is a huge moment. 18, 20,000 people saying, he's the one. But wait. If you read the story, I can't read the whole story time-wise. If you read the whole story, you'll find this moment of their arrival, realizing he's the sent one, only lasts for a moment. It's pretty short. This great discovery, but only lasts for a short time. Why? Why does it last for such a, sh- a short period of time? Because in that moment, you know what had happened for them? In that moment, their stomachs were full. Make sure you get this. The reason why this great arrival only lasts for such a short time is because in a moment, their stomachs are full. And so for just a moment, it's not about how to get more. It's not about how to fill my stomach. For just a moment, their appetite had been satisfied. And in that moment of their stomachs full, they could begin to think about, wait a minute, who is this guy? But here's the the key. But they're going to get hungry again. They're full for the moment, but they're going to get hungry again. Now, here's what Jesus knew. He knew what they were thinking. He knew that when they had these moments of revelation, they were not thinking about what he was really coming to do. What they were thinking is this. Imagine the picture. They're thinking, man, he's the guy. There's 5,000 men right here. That's the same as a legion of soldiers. There's 5,000 men, and there's 20,000 of us all together. We've been waiting. You know, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. We've been waiting for someone to put an end to Rome. Imagine the picture they have in their minds. But here we are. I mean, there's a buzz happening right now. There's 5,000 men. There's 20,000. If we all start marching to Jerusalem right now with Jesus leading us, by the time we get out of Galilee, our numbers will double. By the time we get to Cana, they'll double again. By the time we get to Jerusalem, they'll double again. Don't worry about food. We got Jesus. Don't worry about something to drink. Don't forget water and wine. We got Jesus. He's going to lead us in the revolution. We're going to go into Jerusalem. We're going to storm it. We're going to crush the Romans. We're going to chase them back, and the country will be ours again. Picture that picture. That's exactly what they're thinking, and Jesus knows all that. Now, here's something else Jesus knew. They're saying the Messiah has come. Jesus knew that he would be leading his disciples into Jerusalem. Jesus knew in a very short time he would be riding on a young colt right through the golden gate. And Jesus knew that when he did that, people would be cutting down palm branches and lining the road and shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what day was that considered back then as we now know it? Palm Sunday. What day is it today? Palm Sunday. See, he knew he'd be coming in Jerusalem. But what he knew is that he would not be coming into Jerusalem to be coronated as king. He'd be coming in to be crucified as savior. And that's something they couldn't grasp. Knowing their hearts, knowing what they were going to do, that they were going to try to make him be the king that would lead the revolution. He gets up and he says to them, show's over. They're going, what? Show's over. Go home. He goes, he takes his disciples, puts them on a boat, says, you go back to the other side. I'll catch up with you. He goes back in the mountainside. Now, I don't have time to read for you all the account because a lot of verses from verse 22 all the way through 71. So let me tell you the the story ending and let me then apply some things. 
Jesus is about to call them all out. Jesus is about to call us all out. He's about to call me out. You see, eventually, Jesus meets back up with the disciples. And when he does, guess who shows up? All the thousands of people who were just on the hillside having lunch. They all show up again. And he's about to call us out, including me. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you've said it yourself, you ever have this attitude in your heart where you said this, well, I quit serving because I just wasn't getting anything out of it. I gave up on faith because I wasn't getting anything out of it. I kind of gave up on church because, I got to tell you, it kind of left me kind of empty. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. I used to sit in the front row. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I used to be in a small group, but mm, just seemed to be kind of empty. You just get anything out of it. I stopped doing whatever in the kingdom work because I just wasn't getting anything out of it. And the point that Jesus, I think, is about to make is this. As long as it's about getting something out of it, then you still don't understand it at all. If it's about getting something out of it for you, you really don't understand it. As long as this is about us getting something out of it, we're still just like my children. What's in the suitcase? Aren't I enough? No, open the suitcase. Jesus would say, how about me? I'm enough. And we'd say, well, yeah, you're good. But we really like the tricks. Don't forget how we start our prayers. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for this day. Beautiful day. Blue sky, sunny. You're so good and gracious to us. And let's get down with the small talk and let's get right down to what we need you to do. So here's what we need for you today. That's where we live. So they find Jesus on the other side of the lake. And I, if you can read the story, it's great. They kind of go, oh, Jesus, here you are. When did you get here? Kind of like, hey, we didn't know you'd be here. Forget that. You've been watching and waiting for him. And as soon as he showed up, you all ran around him. And they kind of go like this, hey, we're here. We're your followers. We're here with you, Jesus. We found you. We're your followers. We're faithful. We're going to follow you. And Jesus says, you're not here for me. You are not here following me. You're here because you're hungry again. You're here because your stomach's not full anymore and you want more of the show. Friends, listen carefully. Here's what I think God would tell us in this moment right now. Please do not live for. Please do not work for. Please do not exist for. Please don't give your life for things that will not satisfy you. And we spend a lot of our life, we spend a lot of our time, we spend a lot of our money, we spend a lot of our energy, emotional energy, spiritual energy, on things that do not satisfy. There they are with Jesus saying, we're here for you. And Jesus says, you're not after me. He says, follow me. Just follow me because of who I am. And if you do that, you'll find that you'll be satisfied. Follow me for just who I am. You give your life to me, you'll never be hungry again. Well, John 6, verse 30, our last verse. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we might see it and believe you? What will you do? Jesus says to them, you're not here for me. You're here for the show. But here's the deal. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You follow me. I am who I said I am. And what do they say? They go, well, what sign do you have? Are you kidding me? These are the same people that just had buffet lunch. These are the people who just saw the sign. And what do they say? Give us another sign. What sign do we have so we can believe you? Really? They'd already experienced something beyond belief, and now they say, it's a great show. Just do one more trick. And Jesus says this, no, you've seen enough. I am what you get. This is what you get. If you read this story, you'll find once they realized there was no more show, most of them all leave. Most of them all walk away. You see, here's why. They didn't have an authentic relationship with Jesus because their relationship was all based on what they wanted from him. Remember what I said earlier? Can you have an authentic relationship with someone where you want something from them? You can't. And so they couldn't have a relationship with them because they, it was all based on what they wanted. They wanted treats. They wanted to see what's in the suitcase. Aren't I enough? Well, you're really good, Jesus. 
but we want what you have. We, we want what you did on the hillside. Keep doing that for us. Jesus said, look at me, I'm all that you need. But it would be hard for them to believe when he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, not as hard for us, right? Because when he said that, the resurrection hadn't happened yet. But we're on the other side of it. I mean, we know the Easter story. We're going to celebrate it next week. So how about it? How does that work for you? Are you in it for the food? You in it for the buffet? You in it for the next trick? You in it for what's in the suitcase? Or is he enough? Good news for you. If you're in it for the next thing that you're hoping he'll do, here's my prophetic word. I'm not really a prophet. I just know life. If you're in it for what he'll do for you next, you won't be here long. You don't stay around very long because you're going to say, just didn't get anything out of it. Yeah, I tried church, but didn't get anything out of it. You won't be here very long. To coin a phrase from the great movie, The Wizard of Oz, folks, you don't realize that just like Dorothy, you got the ruby red slippers on already. You know, the movie, the whole time, the, you know, the, the witch, the good, good witch Glenda said, you could have gone home all along. Get everything you needed. See, what we don't realize is that here we are with everything we need. All in Jesus, everything we need. But the question, I mean, really, the, the, the question that changes everything, regardless of who you are, regardless if you're here exploring the claims of Christ for the first time or whether you've been here hundreds and thousands of times because you're a longtime follower of Jesus, the question that changes everything that Jesus would pose to you is this, who do you believe that I am? Do you believe I'm just a magic-working rabbi with a bunch of tricks? If you believe that, you won't be around very long. But if you believe that I'm God in disguise, Jesus would say, if you believe that I am my Father in the form of a man to walk among you, then you will find that you will never be hungry again. Follow me. Let me give you a closing story. Years ago, I mean, like 30-plus years ago, Diane and I were asked to, to do a trip to the Pacific Rim. I was speaking to high school students. She was going to be speaking for a week to children uh, in, at the Dalat School, which would be our mission school in, in Penang, Malaysia. Uh, we were going to be gone for nearly a month. We were going to be there for 10 days speaking. Then we were going to Bangkok and visit some missionaries there and uh, kind of a tour of the Pacific Rim. So he, we went and did that trip. We were at our Alliance School, Dalat School. This was a boarding school for missionary st- uh, children. But it wasn't just for missionary children. But a lot of expats had, uh, would pay to have their, their students go there. I mean, a quality education. This facility was fantastic. They took care for the kids. While we were there, we met this young teenage girl. And uh, her parents, her dad, was the deputy ambassador to, to Thailand. And so she was not a believer, parents not believers, but they had sent her to school there because of the quality, quality education. And while we were there, one of the principals of the school, one of the hires up, said, hey, you're going to go to Bangkok next. Do you want to meet with this guy? And I said, man, I'd love to do that. I'm, and I'm thinking, I would love to meet him, and I think it'd be fun. I, what I knew about most parents that are separated from their kids, they would love to have somebody come and say, hey, we just saw your daughter. That's good. I said, sure, we'll do that. So he sets it up. We get to, to Bangkok. We're in our, the guest house, the, the missionary's guest house. And uh, we get a message that comes. It gives directions on how to get to the place. And so we get a taxi, and taxi takes us to this gorgeous condominium complex. We go up. They're going to have us for dinner. So we're going to the deputy ambassador, the number two guy in the, sta- in the country, ambassador to, to Thailand. We're going to have dinner with him. So we go up, we're in this gorgeous, gorgeous condo and having, having dinner. It's a very nice night, but it's a little strained. Now, by strained, it's not bad, but very formal and just a little odd. Odd enough to the place like this. You know, having some meals with somebody where you go, man, I hope this night lasts forever. And you have other meals where you're saying, I wonder how quickly we can finish the meal. And one of those things, it wasn't bad, but, you know, let's get done here. We're getting done with dessert. And so I'm like, well, we should get out of your hair and get out of here. Diane had gone into the other room with the woman, and he, was, he and I were together. And he says this. He goes, so, kind of a, kind of a, a concluding moment. He goes, so, so what is it that I can do for you? I didn't know what that meant. I go, I, I, what? He goes, well, you said you wanted to meet with us. What is it you need, need me to do for you? kind of clicks for a second and I said well uh, nothing 
I said, you know, I, I don't know how you heard this, but I said, they asked if we wanted to meet you. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And I said, my thought was that, I, one, I would just love to meet you. My wife and I thought it'd be fun being out of country, too. We don't travel all that much. It'd be fun to see, you know, other U.S. citizens in a different country. It'd be fun to meet somebody. But on top of that, we just came back from spending 10 days with your daughter. We just thought you'd like to hear how she was doing. And he said, you don't need anything? And I went, no. The whole relationship changed just like that. Why? Because he would go on to say, in my level of government, nobody just meets with you who doesn't want something or need something from you. And so instead of running out, we stayed. Because now it all changed. All of a sudden, there's a, a warmth and even an intimacy. We came back. He sent me notes and letters. He sent me newspaper articles and connected all because we now had an authentic relationship because we didn't need anything in return. Friends, when you decide to follow Jesus, when you make the discovery that John wants you to make, that Jesus is who he said he was, he's the one. And you just accept him for that alone. You will never go hungry again. Because all of a sudden you'll say, he's enough. And the relationship changes. Some of you can't experience that because you're still waiting for the next thing you need him to do. As opposed to saying, I follow you because of who you are. Stand please, let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's a simplicity to this message. And yet we also understand that it's just not that simple because we live in a world where it's always about more. Getting more, having more. I pray this morning that many of us would find the peace and the rest that comes from recognizing and realizing that we have you. So who do you think I am? You are the chosen one. You are the Savior. You are my Savior. And when I have you, I have enough. I pray for the person who's never given their life to you, that they, they might consider deciding to follow you, to stop chasing after and pursuing all the other things that don't satisfy and just say, I want Jesus. But I also pray for many of us who are longtime followers of Jesus that continue to get a little confused along the way because of what we want you to do, what we think we need you to do, as opposed to just enjoying that you are the one. We come into Easter week. Might we make that discovery over and over again that when we have you, Jesus, we have enough. Dismiss us in your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.